Well, if you have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to join me in the Gospel of Luke and the 10th chapter. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37 will be our text this morning. We're going to pick up this morning where we left off, uh, where we left off last week. There's increasing animosity between Jesus and the religious sect in his own day. And, and I want to talk just for a few minutes on, on why that was so. You know, why, why is it that the people who knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, inside and out, why was it that that group of people had the most friction with Jesus? We, we would not think it would be that way, would we? Uh, for, for example, this lawyer that we meet here in Luke 10, he had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. He had them down pat. That's Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, most of us could handle the first line right in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. But he didn't just know that. He knew the first five books backwards and forwards. And yet when Jesus comes, he sees Jesus as, as, as not the Savior, not the Messiah, but as a, as a threat. What, what had happened? Well, to understand a little bit of the animosity and the increasing friction, it's helpful to know a little bit of history. And I always like to say, if people don't like history, it's just that they weren't taught it very well, because history is very interesting, and it helps us understand this context. So you think of being a first century Jewish man like this lawyer was, and what your history would have been. In Egypt, when the Jewish people were in Egypt, do you remember what they did to the baby boys? They took them and threw them in the river. That's in their history. When they were in the promised land, they were complete, uh, constantly and consistently opposed by the Philistines who wanted to take their lives. Then the Assyrians came against them. The Assyrians marched against the temple and had it surrounded. And if not for the miraculous deliverance from the Lord, they would have been swept away. And then a few generations later, here come the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are not swept away. The Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. They take their pride and joy, their children and they relocate their children from Jerusalem and plant them in Babylon to disconnect them from their heritage, to disconnect them from their language, to disconnect them from their cultural, to, to disconnect them from their God. And, and, and then King Cyrus of Persia allows a remnant to go back to Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the, the wall. And, and then here comes Alexander the Greek. The, 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 not the Greek. He was Greek. Alexander the Great with his what's called Hellenization, new language, new, new traditions. And, and Hellenization swept the Mediterranean world by and large, except this one peculiar outpost with this one peculiar people who did not embrace the, the pantheistic gods of the Greeks, who said, no, 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 we still believe the Lord our God is one. We're going to serve him. And that really got under the skin of one uh, king in particular. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus the Enlightened One. He gave himself that name, by the way. And he said, we're going we're gonna to put an end to, to, to this. this. This happened during what's called the intertestamental period. But, but between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, 400 years of history takes place, which is a pretty good amount of time, right? So, so you know that when you read through the Old Testament, you don't hear one reference to the Pharisees, do you? you? You don't see them at all. 
And then when you get to the New Testament, they're all over the place, and they seem to be very much entrenched in the day-to-day life. It's just their presence is assumed. So we have to ask the question, what happened between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New that this group called the Pharisees became so prominent, and, and their numbers were so large, and they became so, so significant in, in the culture? Well, one of those things was this event that I'm telling you about. Antiochus Epiphanes came from the north, came from Syria, and he said, okay, this peculiar people with their one God and their one temple, we're going to put an end to this. And and so what he did is he brought a, a pig into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and he slit that pig's throat so that the pig's blood poured out all over the Holy of Holies. Now, for the Jewish people, that was, well, here's what they called it, the abomination of desolation. And they revolted. Antiochus Epiphanes, his plan was, we'll do something so offensive, we'll finally stamp them out. And what he actually did was he caused a revolt to take place. And there was a priest in those days, his name was Judas Maccabeus, and he had some pretty uh, brave and... uh, uh, courageous and hard-fighting sons, and they, they, re- they led what's called the Maccabean Revolt. And, and very much unexpectedly, they drove Antiochus and his army out of Jerusalem. They went back into the temple and cleaned it up, and over the course of many days, they, they cleansed the temple and rededicated the temple, and they called it the Festival of Lights. That's what Hanukkah is, by the way. When Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah, they're celebrating this event. And so with all this pressure from the outside of change your God, change your ways, there arose a group of people who said, we are going to be faithful to the law. We're, we're going to be faithful to, the, to, to what the book of the law says. We're going to pass it down from generation to generation. Our entire history is backed up with people trying to stamp us out. So we are going to more faithfully, more And then over the course of time, more rigidly, and then unfortunately over the course of time, more oppressively hold on to this law. And that group of people who began with sort of some legitimate and sincere desires to be faithful to the law over the course of time, this group called the Pharisees, sort of lost that desire to be faithful and they began to use the law for their own purposes and their own power. So that now when Jesus comes, the Messiah comes, the one that the law was pointing to when he gets there, these religious leaders and these Pharisees who are so set in their ways. Now, one of the problems was, (laughs) I mean, Egypt, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and now the Romans have conquered us. And you know, when they thought about the Messiah, We've talked about this, I know, before. When they thought about the Messiah, in their minds, what they held on to was the hope that this Messiah would be like Alexander the Great, only he'd be on their side. And he'd push back all the Hellenization. He'd push back the Roman Empire. He'd be a conquering military king. And Jesus, as he ministers, he he demonstrates some things that would be very beneficial if he were to be a conquering military king, as we've talked about. He's able to feed thousands of people with a few loaves and a few fish. He, He can supply a large standing army with just a small amount of food. He can make the winds and the waves be still so that a that an invading army is no longer at the whims of nature. They can control nature. He can heal injuries. He can even 
raise the dead. Oh, he could, he'd be unstoppable. Let's go to Rome and drive them out. But then as we progress through the ministry of Jesus, we find Jesus is, is hey, he is the Messiah, but he was not the Messiah the way they had interpreted it. And the sinful heart of man has always wanted to take an agenda and give it to Jesus rather than in submission saying, here's Jesus's agenda, if you want to use that word, is to go to Jerusalem, not to drive out the Romans, but we've got bigger enemies than the Romans. We've got sin and death. And Jesus is going to Jerusalem to liberate us from those things. That's a little bit of the historical context. When we get to Luke chapter 10, and for example, verse 25, However, if you'll, if you'll bear with me one more moment, another uh, little piece of the puzzle is for the Jewish people who are always feeling this pressure to conform to the outsiders. Here's another small piece. After David was king, came his son Solomon. After Solomon was king, his young son named Rehoboam became the king. And Rehoboam was a brash, arrogant, proud man. He made some decisions. We won't get all into, uh, all, all into what happened, but he made some decisions that so enraged large portions of the Jewish population that 10 of the original 12 tribes said, no, we're not going to serve you anymore. We're not going to let you be our king. And, and, and they departed. They departed from Jerusalem. These ten tribes moved up to the north, and they founded a new capital city. They established a new temple, and the name of that capital city was Samaria. And over the course of time, these Samaritans were conquered, and and they more readily adopted the practices that those in Jerusalem said, we'll never adopt. We'll preserve the law in our way of life. So, so, uh, so over the course of time, the Samaritans, though they had a history and lineage of Judaism, from the Jerusalem perspective, they forsook their heritage and adopted these other practices. And for the Jewish people, they were anathema. They had done the very thing the Pharisees and those like them said, we will never do, okay? So, so that had happened in the, in, in the close, close of the Old Testament, and, and so hundreds of years of history had taken place. So, so what we need to know for our purposes this morning, for a Jewish lawyer, the most undesirable person in the world is a Samaritan. So you know the story, the Good Samaritan. This kind of rolls off our tongues, right? It's kind of we, we, we understand the goods for for the first century lawyer. Good and Samaritan are two words that would never, ever, ever be uttered in the same sentence. So last week we dealt with his first question. We're going to deal this morning with his with his second question. So beginning in verse twenty five, behold, a lawyer stood up. To put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, where we left off last week is Jesus is confronting this lawyer on his own terms, so to speak. The, the point of the law, again, is not that you keep the law and then you, 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 you'll be able to go to heaven. The problem is the, the law reveals that we can't keep it, right? How many commandments do we need to go down that, before we realize we can't keep this? We don't really need to go any further than the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before him, right? You shall make no graven images. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath holy. You shall honor your mother and father. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet. You shall not bear false witness. The point of those is to reveal to us we're all law breakers. Unfortunately, the Pharisees and this lawyer like him, they, they turned the means that God had blessed us with to reveal that we need to be saved. They turned that into the means of being saved. So Jesus says, hey, if you'll do this, you'll live. And the whole point is, you don't do this. You know this, but you don't do this. Verse 29, this guy just can't let it go. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went, and, uh, he went to him, Bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Well, let's pray together and then allow God's word to instruct us this morning prayerfully father thank you for jesus thank you for his um, clarity and i pray that you give us grace to understand these verses this morning i pray you would give us great insight to your word and help us and guard us from being like the lawyer from knowing things about you but then not doing what your word says for us to do we confess and believe we're saved by grace Thank you that you have blessed us with the law that shows us our need of salvation. And then help us to know once we have been reconciled to you by grace, how it is we are to then live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the first thing that I want to mention from this text is Jesus illustrates that brotherly love is rare and uncommon. This lesson stands out prominently from Jesus' narrative. He's telling him a story, and he says that a traveler fell among thieves, and those thieves left him naked, wounded, and half dead on the road. 
Now, this, uh, this road is a, in those days was a famous road. It's sort of the I-95 of its day, a road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. And in, and in those days, Jerusalem is well above sea level. Uh, Jericho is well below sea level. So if you're traveling on that road, you're kind of, depending on which way you're going, if you're going from Jerusalem to Jericho, as this traveler was, it's all downhill. And all along that road were these uh, kind of high cliffs. And it sort of had a reputation in, in those days as a dangerous road for this very reason. There are a lot of robbers there. And so this guy's traveling alone, which is one of the things that, that very frequently you would not do in those days. You don't want to travel alone. You travel in a caravan or with a party or with people who could protect and so on and so forth. Because these very things happen. So he fell among thieves. And look what the thieves do. They stripped him, beat him, departed, and they left him half dead. And then Jesus illustrates that brotherly love is rare and uncommon. Let's look who, who, who's going to come by. It says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. All right? You'd you'd think if anybody's going to help somebody, who would it be? It would would be one who represents God, right? So so if it's a priest, where's he traveling from? Jerusalem. Where's he going to? Jericho. In those days, many priests worked in Jerusalem, obviously in the temple, and they lived in Jericho. So, so, So a priest is likely coming from the temple where he's served and represented God all day long. All right? That's a little bit of our context. He stood and he's spoken to people about God. He's made sacrifices for God. And now he's leaving and likely on his way home. And he comes by there. And here's a man who's, who's been beaten and stripped. And, and what does the priest do? A priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the, on the other side. Now, when it comes to the law, the law had said some things to priests about not touching things, particularly dead things. And, and so there is a, a likelihood that the priest is traveling by and he, and he sees, here's a man. The, the language suggests that he, he didn't get near the man. He, he saw him and, and then he does, does what? <laughs> he goes around him. And doesn't get near him. And perhaps, perhaps he doesn't get near him because he thinks that he's, that he's dead. And he doesn't want to defile himself. Now here's the problem Jesus has over and over and over with the Pharisees. They, they take the little itty bitty principles of the law to trump the big principles of the law. What's the big principle? Love your neighbor as yourself. Hey, I'll tell you this. If I'm, if I'm uh, been stripped and beaten and left half dead by robbers, you know what? If somebody comes by, I want them to do for me. I want them to, well, do the opposite of what the priest does, right? I don't want them to pass by on the other side. Brotherly love and affection is very, very, very rare. You see, the majority of people that Jesus gives in this text, what did the majority of the people do? Two out of three, 66%, they pass by on the, on the other side. Why do people pass by on the other side? Because it's easier. Yeah, he's got his own schedule. He's come from work. He's represented God all day. It is a tragedy. To represent God, but then not act like God. Well, he's not the only one. It, it, it says, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him. So with the language that is suggesting the Levite gets a little bit closer to him. The, the priest just went way around. The Levite came to the place. He was actually, he, and saw him. He passed by on the other side. Now, Levites were not as high ranking as priests though they too were highly privileged. So, so the Levite comes by, 
and, and he passed by on the other side. And then a third man comes onto the scene. Now, teaching in those days was also often done in trios like this. And probably what the people were expecting is Jesus is going to have a common Jewish man come by, and he's kind of going to stick it a little bit to the religious elite. That's what they're probably anticipating. He's going to get the priests and the Levites, and here's going to come, a, come a, a, just a regular old everyday Jewish man. But again, without belaboring the point, in the day that Jesus is teaching this story, but he says, but a Samaritan comes that way, that's offensive to them. Because Samaritans, uh, you look back over here in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, just as an example. Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of who? The Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Who's the them? The Samaritans. James and John don't bat an eye, don't think twice about, let's destroy them. Who, are, who do the Samaritans think they are to not receive us? We could give you several more examples. Let me just highlight one. If you're in Luke, just flip one book over to the Gospel of John. In John chapter 4, verse 7, there, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now look what it says. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see that? So These two groups of people, they have such animosity one another that it was just understood in that day they don't even speak to one another now in Jesus's day the rabbis and we have evidence and records of these sorts of things the rabbis taught for example and I'm quoting from one of his contemporary rabbis let no man eat the bread of the Samaritans for he who eats their bread is as he who eats swine's flesh there was, an e- there was even a Jewish prayer in that day that concluded with this statement asking God, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. True brotherly love is rare and uncommon. And Jesus illustrates this by using a man that that audience would have had no love for. What, what, what is the difference between the Samaritan and the priest and the Levite? Well, Well, we're told here, it says, verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had, what's your Bible say? He had compassion. Maybe your translation says pity, or or, or mine says says compassion. I want you to see from this text, that's what the Samaritan had that the priest did not have, and what the Levite had did not have. And as a matter of fact, it's one of the key words in the Gospel of Luke. If you were to do a word study of key words that pop up with regularity in Luke's Gospel, this word it would, be on, would be on the list. Now, what is, 
What is compassion? Well, we're in Luke, so, so let me just show you a few other times where this word pops up. For example, we'll look at one text before this and then one text after Luke 10. So flip back a few pages to Luke chapter 7 and verse 11. Brotherly love is rare and uncommon in the world, but it is not rare or, or uncommon in heaven, okay? It's rare in the world, but it's not rare in heaven. As a matter of fact, well, let's read these verses and you'll get a little bit what I'm saying. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, he, that's Jesus, went to a town called Nain and his disciples in a great crowd with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the, the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Jesus gave him to his mother. Amazing story, isn't it? Jesus' resurrection of one young man is rooted in his compassion. Jesus' spiritual resurrection of you who are dead in trespasses and sins, it's, it's compassion. Luke, Luke 15. Luke 15. So flip over to Luke 15. Uh, we'll study this in greater detail in, in the coming weeks. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And you, you may know this, a, a, a story that Jesus tells to to illustrate the gospel, uh, one of the father's young sons goes off and squanders everything. And you, but, but, but here we go. At, at the point of the story when the young son who squandered everything's coming back to his father, it says in verse 20, He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion same word, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put it on a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, that's just two of many scriptures we could point out that praise God Almighty, He's a God of compassion. Now, I want you to see that in every instance we're studying, whoever the Bible says had compassion did something, right? In each instance, the Bible attributes compassion to a person. They respond in action. So, so you can jot this down. Compassion always leads to action. Always. So, so if you want to just do the test in your own heart and mind, are you a person of compassion? All of us want to say, yes, I'm a person of compassion. But the follow-up question is, what do you do in response to the compassion? Because if there's no action that comes from it, it's not biblical compassion. There's a connection in all of these texts between seeing something, having compassion, and then doing something. Did we see that? All three scenes. Jesus comes upon the woman and he sees her, sees the situation, has compassion, does something. Here in, here in the, uh, the Good Samaritan, he came, saw him, felt compassion, then did something. When he was still a long way off, his father, what? Saw him, felt compassion, and did something. 
And Jesus is going to say of this whole story to the lawyer who knows and knows and knows but doesn't do anything for anybody. How's, this, how's it summarized? You go and you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. One of the things Jesus is teaching us here is these two great commands, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself are inseparable. It is impossible to obey one command without obeying the second command, Right? Anybody who says they love the Lord their God and doesn't love their neighbor as their self, Jesus is saying you, you've misunderstood. You might know about God, but if you don't, but if you love him, you're going to, to go and do, going to go and do likewise. We'll give up in a moment the best example of, of all of that. So first of all, we, we see here that in that day and in this day, brotherly affection and love, really caring about people is rare and uncommon. Would you agree with me that it's still rare and uncommon today? We still live in days where people prefer to pass by on the other side. Secondly, Jesus illustrates to whom we should show kindness and to whom we are to love as neighbors. And Jesus is well aware of the cultural uh, situation of his day and the times in which he teaches He well understood the animosity and the division that existed between the Jewish people and the Samaritan. As the Samaritan comes along, he asks no questions. He offers no rational excuses as to why he should not help. He does not judge how the man got into this predicament. He immediately gives first aid. He immediately immediately goes into action. So Jesus illustrates to whom we should show kindness. Now, in that day, the Pharisees had taught everybody, your neighbor is only the person who's like you, fellow Jews. That's what they taught. You serve and love fellow Jews. But if it's a Roman or it's a Samaritan or if it's somebody who doesn't speak your language or doesn't have your culture or doesn't have your background, that doesn't apply. Your neighbor is only people who are like you. What is Jesus showing here? That's not so. As a matter, as a matter of fact... God had given and blessed the Jewish people with the law so that they would love and serve other people in a way that was not seen anywhere else. And now that's to be true of Christians. A Christian ought to be ready to show kindness and brotherly love to everyone that's in need. Not just to our families and our friends, of course. The scripture says do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. But not only those of the household of faith. We're to love all people. Be kind to all people whenever the occasion is required. We should be the friend of anyone who's oppressed, neglected, afflicted, orphaned, or in need. To be friendly and caring and compassionate, which again leads to action in this way, is to show people something of the mind that was in Christ. And now we get to do that just not only in our own lives, but collectively together to help build the Baptist children's home, to fund and dig wells for people who have no clean drinking water, to fund and, and, and make the effort to get the Bible translated to people who've never had the Bible, to help troubled young men. Why? Why would we do this? Well, because when we had no home, Right? When we had no spiritual water to drink, when we were darkened in our understanding, when we were fatherless and alone, he came for us, right? This is what we believe. 
He had compassion on us when we did not deserve it. Thank God Almighty that we have a high priest who did not pass by on the other side. And we're not going to be a pass by on the other side, people, specifically because we do not serve and love a pass by on the other side Savior. So first, Jesus illustrates that Brotherly affection and love is very rare and uncommon in the world. Secondly, he illustrates to whom we should show kindness and to whom we are to love as neighbors. And third, Jesus illustrates to what extent we are to show kindness and to love others. And I think as I've thought and prayed over this, we we sort of want to be like the priest and the Levite, right? We don't want to be... But I don't know if we really want to be like the Samaritan. We, we want sort of, some, can we find somewhere in between, right? We know we ought not to pass by on the other side. But man, when you really begin to look and examine what the Samaritan does. Well, let, how about we do that? Let's look and examine what the Samaritan does. Verses 29 to 37. I'm sorry, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Again, that's where it all starts. A lack of compassion is a lack of action. A presence of compassion leads to action. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. First of all, he bound up his wounds. You know what? There's just really no way to do that without getting messy. There's just no way. It's not possible. I mean, you come along somebody and they've been beaten up and roughed up and they're bleeding and they're... I mean, the Bible says he's left half dead. I don't imagine that this guy's just got a scrape or two. There's no way to interact. There's no way to help him without, without getting messy. And then he poured on oil and wine. These are his personal possessions and are used at his own expense. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So this guy, he, he gets off his own donkey, he gets off his own animal, he, he, he gives up his own car, if we would put it up in, in, in those terms today. He walks to his own discomfort. So now he's messy, he's used his personal possessions at his own expense, and now he, it's to his own discomfort. He brought him to an end. This is not a part of his schedule. It's not what he had planned for today. Sometimes we're so scheduled, we stop helping people because... That's not a part of our schedule. I mean, to take him to this inn and take care of him, that means he stayed overnight. It's not what he had planned to do. But, but we've got to be a people who are more about helping people than keeping our own schedule. Because I'll tell you, when you really aim to help people, there, it's, it's not a, <laughs> in a certain block of time. Then it says he took out two denarii. Well, you don't have any denarii in your pockets. What is that? A denarii is a day's wage. Two days' wages. Again, his own money, and there's no assurance he's going to get paid back. And then he says, I will repay you when I come back. Whatever more you spend. So he promises to cover any additional expenses. He promises to check back up on the man. And I think the previous actions give value to his word of promise to do so. Now, I think many of us would be more willing to help others if we knew it would not be messy. If we knew it would not require, require the use of our own personal possessions 
if we knew it really wouldn't cause us any discomfort or it wouldn't interrupt our schedule too terribly much or it wouldn't cost too much money and could be easily wrapped up with no expectation of further involvement, right? We'd sign up for that. But you don't really help people that way. Helping others requires time and money and, yes, much effort and trouble. The Samaritan helps not just in his talking but in his acting. Just listen. I'm just going to just listen to the verbs associated with the Samaritan in this text. I'm just going to read you the list of verbs. He came. He saw. He had compassion. He went. He bound up. He poured out. He went. He set. He brought. He took care. He took out two denarii. He gave. He said. He repaid. He came back. Only one time in there did it say he said anything. All of it was doing. J.C. Ryle preacher I admire very much from way back in the 19th century said, the Christian should think it no misspent time to work as hard in doing good to those who need help as others work in trying to get money. He should not be ashamed to toil as much to make the misery of this world rather smaller as those who toil, who hunt, or shoot all day long. He should have a ready ear for every tale of sorrow and a ready hand to Help anyone in affliction so long as he has the power. Such brotherly love the world may not understand. The returns of gratitude which, which such love meets with may be few and small, but to show such brotherly love is to walk in the steps of Christ. The world would be a happier world if there were more practical Christianity. Now, <laughs> I imagine... That this Jewish man who fell among robbers for the rest of his life, when he hears statements, even prayers, even rabbis teaching, disparaging Samaritans as good for nothing, must think, he must think, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so, I, I know one. Now, now, we're living increasingly in days in which the name Christian is going to be disparaged, is going to be mocked. You want to live in such a way when anyone says a disparaging thing about a Christian, the people who come in interaction with you would say, I'm not so sure about that. When I was in need, when no one else would help me, here came a Christian and he or she did not pass by on the other side. Verse 37. He said, the one, or which of these three, sorry, verse 36, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Now, (laughs) you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Not half dead, all the way dead. But God, being rich in mercy, even when you were dead, He came. (laughs) Praise God Almighty. He had compassion on us. He got uh, personally involved at great expense to himself, did he not? Not two denarii, 
but his own, but his own blood. He, he came and found us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And at great cost to himself, great cost to himself, bound us up. By his wounds, we are healed. <laughs> put us, not on his own, not on his own animal. He, he, he took our guilt and shame and put on himself. Your sin debt on the cross on his own shoulders. Why? Because when he came and saw us from Genesis 3, dead in our trespasses and sins on, God Almighty came and he had compassion and compassion always leads to action and the great compassion of God led to the greatest action that's ever been done that Christ was crucified on our behalf so it makes no sense it's 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 inconceivable that a people who have been redeemed by such a God and his compassion when we see people in need or in trouble would ever would ever pass by on the on the other side Now, do you extend by your actions, again, by your actions, the compassion that you yourself have received from Jesus? You see, this lawyer came up and he had all the answers, but Jesus, Jesus, two times, look what he says, two times, verse 28, you have answered correctly, do this and and you will live. And then verse 37, and Jesus said to him, you go and, and do likewise. Who's our neighbor? How should we love him or her? And to what extent? The the answer is, by God's grace, we should love them to the extent that God has so loved us. We know this verse, don't we? (laughs) For God so loved the world, he's saying in this way, in this manner, that he gave, he gave love giving, they go together. So love the Lord that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. When are we going to stand together? Let's stand together. We're going to pray together. First part of the invitation as we bow our heads together, the first part of the invitation is for those who go by the name Christian. You're a believer in Christ. You're a follower of Jesus. In our lives, we don't want to just know this text. The lawyer knew the law, but those who have been saved by grace through faith, knowing it's the gift of God, it's not by works, so that no one may boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. But here's Ephesians 2, 10. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Would you just allow the Holy Spirit to reveal any times or any situations or scenarios in your life that you follow in the footsteps or the priest or the Levite? You come by and you see, but you pass by. It reveals, again, in accordance with the scripture, it reveals a lack of compassion. And maybe you take time during the invitation to confess that to the Lord, that I'm self-focused. I'm scheduled to the point where I feel like helping people is an interruption in my life. Oh, praise Jesus that he made his schedule people not interruptions. He didn't view people that way. And God give us grace to be the same. And then the invitation is open.
anybody who's never received the Jesus who had came and saw and had compassion and gave himself for us. This is the gospel. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy, even when we were dead. No, he did not pass by on the other side. He came as near as he possibly could. God came in the flesh. That's Jesus. And didn't pay two denarii. He paid the eternal debt with his own blood when he was crucified on the cross to reconcile us to the Father. If you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, we invite you to respond to the invitation. Begin to move in that direction of putting your faith in Christ. I'll stand here at the front. Anybody who's got a burden or concern, come to, we'll pray together. Or if you prefer to come here and kneel at the front and pray, or of course you're welcome to stay where you are. And Father, would you search our hearts and know us? Help us not just to have studied a story and moved on about our lives, but all scriptures God breathed, and it's profitable for correction, for reproof, for exhortation. So would you use this Luke 10 account to correct us, to change us, to, to, to alter our ungodly patterns of behavior, to help us not be a people who pass by on the other side. And Father, would you this week give us eyes to see like this Samaritan had when we come and contact with people in great need that we'd have compassion. Father, help us to respond now in a way that's honorable to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.